that Bill read from Isaiah 53, but I'm going to quote it a lot. You might want to have your Bible open to Isaiah 53. If you're using a pew Bible, that's 1145 is the page number. If you're new, we don't normally do the two-sermon thing, just so you know this is a once-every-once-in-a-while thing. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> Isaiah 53 starts out with the verse, um, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's kind of a rhetorical question, like, we're saying this, but nobody's believing it. Which is a little bit ironic, because Isaiah 53 is one of the most absolutely explicit and clear messages in the whole Bible of who the Savior is going to be, and exactly what the Savior is going to do. In fact, if I could only have like 10 passages in the Bible, there's some weird rule, and I was going to get 10 passages in the Bible of 25 verses or less, that I would have to use only those to preach out of the rest of my life, this would probably be one of them. There's a, there's a lot in it. Um, in fact, when I was, uh, when I was eight, 19 and my wife was 18, we met for the first time. Um, I was um, a Christian already, and she was from a nominally Jewish household. We started talking about things related to faith fairly early. And um, this, is this is us back in those days. And um, that's actually from an 80s party we went to. We went to college in the 90s. Yeah. But that, you can see the fake chest hair. So, um, but when we, when we were in college— um, we were talking about this, and, and Alexi was like, okay, so I'm Jewish, and so I don't know a lot about Judaism, because we didn't ever go to anything, but one thing I do know about Judaism is Jesus isn't for me. And I said, well, that's re really interesting. And so we would look at all these—we'd read, like, these passages from the Bible in the Old Testament, and one of the last conversations—in fact, the last conversation we had before she committed her life to Jesus was we sat down, and I read her Isaiah 53. And I said, I'm going to read this to you. You just tell me who you think this is about. Because this is the figure who is the center of your Jewish scriptures. And then it's just up to, it's up to you. One of the reasons it's important is because Isaiah 53, to an eerie level, explains the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it does so in a way that is utterly secure that it came long before Jesus was ever born. Isaiah was authored in about 700 BC, but sometimes people get the, get the question like, well, maybe some of this stuff got put in later. You know, in the transmission. So maybe it got authored then, but there's different stuff now. And that argument actually held a little bit of water before 1947. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and one of the largest scrolls that was among the Dead Sea Scrolls was the Isaiah Scroll. And so we were able to look at a scroll that was dated well before the birth of Christ, somewhere between 150 and 200 BC, and we were able to look at it and compare it to the Leningrad Codex, which was from a thousand years after Christ, and see what had changed in a you know, 1,100 years of transmission of this text. What had changed? <clears throat> and in Isaiah 53, there's 166 words. There were 17 letters in dispute from those 166 words. Ten of them were just—they um, were misspellings, and so the, the letter was just a mistake. In, in four of them, it was style. It was like something with a conjunction or something, a stylistic change of a letter, but not a word. In fact, only, in only one case was there a word, and it was just in one verse there was the word light added— and it didn't really change the meaning of the verse at all. And so the Isaiah 53 that we read today is the text that preceded the birth of Jesus. And yet, if you listened when Bill read it, it's a little eerie. I mean, it's, it talks about Jesus' death and even how he was buried. It predicts that he rose from the dead. It's like the whole gig is right there. 
And so when we, as we're going through Isaiah, remember the, the point of the series is not for me to preach through Isaiah. It's the gospel in the Bible. Where is the good news about Jesus, in, especially in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Isaiah? And in Isaiah 53, it's just everywhere. And the main focus of Isaiah 53 is that it tells us both the who and the how of the gospel. If you're new, you know that you, you won't know this is really important that I start this timer. And so I want to go through two who's and two how's. The first is, the first is who is the servant? And the, I'll t- okay, I'll give you the, you want the answer up front. The answer is Jesus. Um, because, but when people write, they say, well, wait a second, this is long before Jesus. It's written way back before Jesus. How can it be about Jesus and mean something to people then? Surely it means something else, but there's, there's not a good other option. For example, some people have said that, well, it's probably the nation, the whole nation of Israel referred to as a single person. That's by far the most popular. If you read Jewish rabbis from, from into the Christian period and after, uh, that's what most, most all of them say, is that this is just Israel referred to in a single thing. But just what we've, we've done so far as I've preached through Isaiah should be able to show that that's, that can't really be right. And that's partly because all through the book of Isaiah, the Jewish people are, are shown to be not innocent. They're shown to be guilty. In fact, that's the whole point of Isaiah. God's saying that to them and saying, come out of that. It's a call to repentance. And so, for example, right before the first servant song, the section on the servant of the Lord that we've been talking about the last couple weeks, it starts in chapter 42. The verses right before that say this, I look, but there is no one, no one among them, in context, that's the whole nation of Israel, to give counsel, no one to give an answer when I ask them. Meaning, when I say, hey, who am I, and how does this work, and what's, what does it mean to belong to me and to be my— He's like, I can ask all of them that question, and no one can give me the right answer. And then he says, See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. <clears throat> and yet, when you look at the picture of the servant in Isaiah 53, he's totally righteous. He's the exact opposite. He is the, the Israel that Israel was always meant to be and, and wasn't. He's the humanity every human was meant to be and wasn't. Remember, Israel is supposed to be exemplary humanity. It says, He had done no violence, this is the servant, nor was any deceit in his mouth. My righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. And the other thing that's important is, is that in Isaiah 53, it says that the servant suffers and dies for Israel. So he's not Israel. It says, For the transgressions of not just people in general or the peoples, but my people, meaning the chosen people, the people of the Old Testament covenant, the Jewish people. Some people have argued, in fact, you'll see this when I quote from Acts chapter 8, maybe it's Isaiah, <clears throat> but we talked about the way the book of Isaiah lays out. Chapters 1 through 38 happened during Isaiah's life. And then, right around the end of the reign of Hezekiah, Isaiah himself dies. But he's written the rest of the book as a book of comfort for the people of Israel. So you start out chapter 40, if you remember that sermon four or five sermons ago, it starts out with comfort, comfort my people. And then it lays out a message about the, about the future of what God is going to do among his people that's supposed to comfort them because they're going into exile. They're going to be slaves, right? And so Isaiah's not part of this. He dies. He's not a character in this story. And in no way is Isaiah ever referred to in any of the book as dying for the people. 
right, it says a number of times that this person, the servant, doesn't just die because they're ministering to the people, but this person actually dies in the place of the people. Meaning, for the death they deserve, he dies it for them. That doesn't apply to Isaiah, but it does apply to the servant a number of times just in this chapter. But the second thing to make really clear is Jesus isn't just the servant because this points to him. The, one of the questions you should ask is, like, so why does God use this title, the servant? Why doesn't he say the Messiah or the anointed one or something? Why the servant? And it's because of what this, this figure does. He's a servant. That's why he's called the servant, because he's a servant. And so the, one of the questions is, well, whose servant? And one of the things that God wants to make really clear, apparently, is that he says he's my servant. Before we talk about the, the purpose of the servant for us or anybody else, first and foremost, it's who the servant—not who the servant serves, but who does he belong to? Who does he deser- serve out of belonging? And it's not us. It's God. He's God's servant. And the re- here's why that's so important. Because otherwise, you'll get within Christian faith this schizophrenic idea that God is like the angry alcoholic father that gets really mad because people sin, and Jesus is like the— dutiful older brother in a dysfunctional family that gets between him and the little brother, right? And so God is really mad because of sin, and, and Jesus comes and saves us from our sins so that God isn't mad at us anymore, and he brings together the, the dysfunctional family of the divine mind. And that's absolutely false in the Bible. In the Bible, who of the triune Godhead brings all the wrath there is to bring in the Bible, ultimately? It's Jesus. Right? The book of Revelation, and and everywhere Jesus talks about the end, he says he's going to come back, and he's going to bring back the full kingdom of God. He's going to redeem all that belong to it, and he's going to bring wrath to all who are his continuous enemies and rebels. Right? It's Jesus who does the wrath, and it's Jesus who does the saving. And in both areas, he serves the will of the Father. It is the Father who loves and sends his servant to save a people for himself. The whole Trinity, the Father, is loving towards sinners. The Son is loving towards sinners. And the Spirit is loving towards sinners. And is also offended by sin. Does that make sense? He said, in Isaiah 42, he says, Behold my servant, who I uphold, my chosen, in whom I, my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And then, so who does the servant serve? He doesn't just serve Israel. He does serve Israel. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in the book of Romans, For the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everybody who believes. And then there's this weird racial statement, right? First for the Jew— and then for the Gentile, right? How does that work? Well, it's because the Jewish people are the chosen people through whom the plan of God goes to all people. They, they, they're first. But when you read about what the servant does, it's not just that. For example, in chapter 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, that is the servant. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant or an agreement for the people. That's specific to the Jewish people. And in addition to that, a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from dark dungeons those who sit in darkness. So he's concerned about the blind 
and the captive and those in darkness. And there are plenty of those among his people, but it's also all of the Gentiles, that's all of the rest of humanity that need Christ's light, the light of the servant Messiah, right? And, oops, sorry, wrong button. Sorry, it's a new program. And then in chapter 49, which focuses this even a little more, here, look what it says here. And now the Lord says, He who formed me, me there is the servant, me in the womb, to be his servant, to bring back Jacob back to him and gather Israel. Jacob's another name for Israel, right? So he's saying, He formed me, the servant in the room, to bring Israel back to himself. And then he says this, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, so now the Lord is speaking to the servant. He says this, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, so that you may bring my salvation, where? To the ends of the earth. So the who is, the servant is Jesus, the Messiah, Savior. But whose servant is he? He's God's servant to bring his salvation to all people. Right? It's not proprietary. So some people be like, okay, so you use this Old Testament passage, but did Jesus really think of himself this way? And the answer is, I'm glad you asked. Yes, he did. This is Luke chapter 22. This is at the Last Supper. Then Jesus asked them, the disciples, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandal, did you lack anything? Meaning when he sent them out by themselves to do ministry. They went out, and they did it, and they came back, and they were like, that was kind of cool. And he didn't let them take anything with them. And, and so he said, did you, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. And he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's a little bit of an offensive verse in the Bible. But I mean, think about it. He's saying, listen, it's going to get bad. You're going to need a knife more than you're going to need a cloak, okay? It's like, okay, we're going to do some ministry. and I won't name a city. I, it would be just mean. Um, verse 37. I almost did. Nick, three years ago, would have said a city. Um, it is written. So he's saying, he's saying, the reason you're going to need to do that is because it's written. That is, in the Old Testament, it says this. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Where's that from? Isaiah 53, right? He says, And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me, he says. Yet, what is written about me, yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. So you see, he's, what's he explicitly saying? He's explicitly saying the servant of Psalm, of Isaiah 53, is him. And it's about, and what that, what that chapter is about is about to happen. And if that's the Last Supper, what is about to happen? Well, it's Friday. He dies. <laughs> he gets taken, beaten. He dies. He rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. That's what happens after that. And Isaiah, Isaiah 53 is about to happen, he says. And the earliest Christians understood it this way, too. There's this funny—it's this really a funny story. This guy, Philip, he's one of the first deacons, and he's doing ministry. He's just killing it, his miracles and stuff. And then the Holy Spirit just, like, picks him up and, like, takes him over to the desert and drops him in the desert. And he's standing there, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And this, this African guy who's from Ethiopia, who's a eunuch, who serves like some queen in somewhere maybe in Ethiopia, is coming back from having worshipped at the Jewish temple for some reason. And he's in charge of, like, all the money for Queen Candace. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, see that, that chariot? Go run next to it. And you just imagine the guy's like, you know, I got sandals. It's kind of hot. Okay, so he goes and runs next to this, this chariot, right? Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. 
right? This guy has an Isaiah scroll. He's in his chariot. He's reading it out loud because that's, that's how people read the scriptures up until very recently. Always read it out loud. Do you understand what you're reading? So, I mean, th- think about this. There's a guy, he's in his chariot. He's reading this. And there's this guy running next to it in the middle of the desert. Hey! Do you understand what you're reading? You can imagine this. Like, and so he says, how can I? He says, unless somebody explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him because it's hard to explain the scriptures while you're running next to someone in the desert. <laughs> right? It says, and the eunuch was reading this passage of the scriptures. See if you, see if this is familiar. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with this very passage of Scripture and told them the good news about Jesus. You know, I remember reading that when I was kind of young. Like, I don't know, I was like in my late teens or something. I read that, and I'm like, man, Philip, Philip's kind of slick, man. He could take that little bit of Old Testament and tell him about Jesus? I have no idea. I mean, just, it's the most—I mean, think about the divine providence of that. Philip shows up just when this guy's reading Isaiah 53. I mean, that, that is a softball if I've ever gotten one, right? But the earliest Christians in Jesus himself totally understood Isaiah 53 this way. But it doesn't just talk about Jesus being the servant, that, that he's the one who is the identity of the servant. It also tells us in a very clear and focused detail exactly what Jesus does in his death and resurrection. And that is supposed to be an enormous benefit to you and me. And the first of the two things we need to talk about, the how he saved and was the Savior and servant, is that he died for your sins. Now, I know we say that at church all the time, but most of us don't pay any attention to that incredibly important prepositional phrase. That word for saved your eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is summarizing the whole gospel. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Right? What's the number one most important thing Paul knows? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What's the Scriptures in that context? That's the Old Testament, right? According to the Old Testament, the Old Testament said the Christ was going to come and die for our sins, right? And then it says, And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Now look at that phrase. According to scriptures. What is that? What is he claiming? He's claiming the Old Testament teaches what? The burial and the resurrection. That the resurrection itself is explicitly taught in the Old Testament, he says. That's crazy talk, right? And I want you to see, it's not just there in Romans. Here in Galatians, he says, this is the first lines of the book, right? He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In Romans 4.25, the first four chapters of Romans is this really long, decently complicated, very explicit argument of what the gospel is. Chapters 5 through the end is applying that to everywhere of life, right? And so that whole section ends with this verse. He, that's Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins— and was raised to life for our justification. In 1 John, the Apostle John's getting near the end of his life. He's writing to the churches that he's leading in modern-day Turkey, and he writes this to them. My dear children, 
I write this to you so that you will not sin. Meaning, I'm going to tell you something comforting. Please don't take advantage of it. I'm not telling you this so you can sin more. I'm telling you this so that you can know it, okay? And he says, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Sounds a little bit like my righteous servant, doesn't it? He is, what, what is he? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. Right? So where did, where did all these New Testament authors get this from? And they got it explicitly right out of Isaiah 53. Right? Look at what it says. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see what he's saying? This is the mechanism by which we're saved. This demonstrates that we all need it. You see what he's saying? He's saying, this is how it happened here. And you are in the group of we there because we're all like sheep that have gone astray. We're all little rebels. And what we needed was put on him. Or just a few verses later, it says it so many times in this passage. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Now, that might be confusing for you if you weren't here when we did the Leviticus a few months ago. But in Leviticus 5 to 7, which you can look up in your Bible, it talks about the guilt offering. And the guilt offering is when um, somebody did something that made them guilty before God. They had to bring a sacrifice and put their hands on it, and that sacrifice had to die. And their guilt was put on the sacrifice so that they could be free of their guilt. And so— but that was never a human sacrifice. And here, his servant becomes a guilt offering. That is, he dies to take away the guilt of the people who trust him. You see? There's one line in here that's really odd. It says, look at the first line. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Does that strike anybody else as odd? I mean, it doesn't normally strike as odd in Madison because of sort of like Madison politics. Like, yeah, yeah, the wicked and the rich, it's the same group, right? <laughs> you know? But in the ancient world, people didn't think that way. People thought of riches as usually as evidence of God's blessing. So there wasn't this sort of, there was, you know, there's always been envy, but, you know, there wasn't this idea that if you were rich, you were therefore evil, right? Which some people indulge in now. So that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So he was treated like he was awful. He was counted among the wicked. He was buried among the rich. Like that—that's really weird. Why would you take a criminal and say something about the terror of his death as a criminal like he was put among the wealthy, which is kind of would be like a benefit? And that—that really doesn't make any sense until you read the Gospels, right? And what happens in the Gospels? Jesus is killed like a murderous villain against Rome, the worst kind of shame possible. And then what happens? A guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who's wealthy, buries him in a rich man's tomb. It's just a little eerie. That's all. And awesome. 
Now, the, the thing is, though, there's a ton in here about Jesus dying for our sins. And I'll leave you to read that because if you just take 20 minutes of your own time and read through that and just write down, like on a piece of paper, all the ways it refers to how Christ has died for you, it will give you such a clear idea of what it means that Jesus was our substitutionary atonement, that he was substituted for us. He died in our place so that we could be set free. But one of the things that's much easier to miss is that the resurrection is in this passage. In fact, this passage has the clearest reference to the resurrection that I know of in the Old Testament. Um, and it's important because the, the verse itself says, when this happens, people who see the servant killed won't think he's doing something good. Won't think God has done this. They'll think that he's just bad. It says in verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet what was our perspective? We thought, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Why? Because in Deuteronomy it says, everybody who hangs on a tree is under God's curse, it says. So by definition, a guy who gets nailed to a tree is under the curse of God. He can't be doing anything for us. That is, unless taking the curse of God is exactly the thing he's doing. So which is it? And how can you know? You see, for most of us who believe in the resurrection, we've come to believe the idea that the main point of the resurrection is to tell us that we can have eternal life because Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you can rise from the dead. Now that is true. That is very helpful. And if that encourages you, fantastic. But I'm here to tell you that you could have figured that out by deductive logic. If God exists, and God is all-powerful, and he jolly well wants you to be raised from the dead, what's going to happen? You're going to be raised from the dead. Didn't need Jesus for that one, right? Now, I don't want to belittle it. I mean, it happened in real-time space history. That should be really encouraging to us as it comes from the witness testimony of people we feel like we can trust. But that's not the main thing the resurrection was for. The main thing the resurrection did is it decided for us between the two possible interpretations of what happened. Without the resurrection, which is it? Do you think you could have decisively known how to interpret the death of Jesus? Whether he was under God's curse or whether he was taking God's curse? How would we know? But if God raised Jesus from the dead through his own power, he doesn't do that with someone who's under his curse, right? He would only do that with someone that he meant to vindicate and show us we should see as taking his curse. And then if he went and predicted he was going to do that 700 years before that servant was ever born, that would be even more, wouldn't it? And as, you, as we track through this passage— Oops, man, I'm just so used to pushing that button. There's four steps. As you track this passage through, it comes sequentially, right? So the first verse is in chapter 8, in verse 8, where it's really clear that this guy dies, right? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. If that wasn't clear enough for you, who can speak of his descendants? He didn't live long enough to have any kids. For when—for he was cut off from the land of the living. That's harder to get a clear euphemism on that, isn't there? He was stricken. And then, to make sure it's really clear, it actually even talks about his burial. Like, this guy ended up in the ground, right? He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence and no deceit was found in his mouth. And then after, it's explicitly clear more than once that he's dead and in the ground. It says this, and he will see his offspring. What did it say just a few verses before that? Who can speak of his descendants? Now, there's a little bit of consternation over exactly how to translate that first verse, and I can't get into that right now. But you see the contrast? Who can speak of his descendants? He will see his offspring. 
Now, we'll get, we're going to get to that when, we, when I preach on Isaiah 54, which talks about his offspring, which is through the barren woman. That is not biological. It's a nation created out of, out of, out of barrenness. That is through faith. Not a biological nation, but a new nation of people taken from all the peoples of the world. That's in chapter 54, 55, and 56. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the Lord will prosper in his hands. But it's not just that he will be alive after he was dead, but God is going to lift him up, which sometimes we refer to as glorification. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That explicitly says, in context of the rest of the chapter, after he's dead, he will be alive again. It cannot get more explicit than that. By his knowledge, my righteous service will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, here's the issue that people sometimes have with this. And that is, okay, so, but, but Nick, where, where are the pointers? Like, I, I mean, I came to church. Here I am. I'm ready to be told what to do. Where's the pointers? Where's the advice? Where's the seven principles to make my marriage better, or to be a better worker, or to get a better job that'll get me more money? I mean, like, what do we do? What are we doing here? And I've been trying to make clear for the better part of four years now that the, the gospel, the message that God has for us is not advice. It's news. Gospel means good news. You hear it, and something happens. And it's not advice. Um, it's not advice for you to follow. It's news for you to believe. And if you understand the nature of news, you'll believe that, that it can change everything. Because here's, here's what you need to know. Advice doesn't actually change people. Now you think, well, that's not really true. It is true. Listen, if, you, if the advice you give somebody is a truth and they believe it, you didn't give them advice. You actually told them something that was simply true. So if you say, listen, if you keep doing that, you're just going to like— That's not advice. That's—you should stop. Right? If you say, listen, if you go this way with your relationship, here's what's going to happen. I do this all the time in my office. A couple comes in, blah, 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 back and forth. Then I talk to them individually, and I turn to the guy and say, listen, she shouldn't leave you, but she's going to. Okay? You keep doing what you're doing, and you can quote the Bible at her all day long, and in two years, she will not live at your house. Okay? It's just a fact. Now, I, I didn't necessarily tell him to do anything. I just told him a fact. That's all. And some of those guys go, oh. And that news, I don't have to tell him to do anything. The minute they believe that truth, their whole life changes. They had a wake-up call. We, we could, in, the, in the South, we used to call that a come-to-Jesus meeting right? Advice is when you say, you know, you really should do this. What do people say? What do people say when you say, you should really do this? They go, I know. I know. What are they saying? I don't have the freaking motivation to do it. I know I'm supposed to do that. I know I'm supposed to do that. I'm not the kind of person who can. Advice doesn't change people. Truth, news changes people. No, see, listen, I mean— if you're a Packers fan and you were watching the Bears game a few weeks back, nobody had to tell you to cheer when Cobb went, caught that touchdown pass. Nobody's like, um, Cobb made a touchdown pass. I advise all of us to cheer. <laughs> right? Like, I was, I was feet off the ground. I mean, it's just, 
I was excited, right? Nobody had to tell me. News changed me. I just saw it happen. I knew it was the truth, and I reacted. News has much more power to change us than advice ever could. And, the, and what God has given us is news, not advice. Now, some people have difficulty with this because they're concerned that if Christianity is news and not advice, that it's not going to change people. People aren't going to get better. Because if you just say, well, Jesus died for our sins. I mean, look at the passage. God has his own servant. We stink. He sends his servant to save us. His servant does the saving. We just receive it. That's just going to create a bunch of lazy jerks that keep doing bad stuff and think that they can fill up their sin bag as much as they want because Jesus will empty it out. Christians are going to be the worst possible people on the face of the earth. Right? A few years back, I found a quote from Tim Keller that I thought was really helpful. He said this. He says, If you don't believe people can change without fear or the prospect of pride, then you're admitting that the only motivation you believe in is fear and pride. You see, if, if we believe, if God just says, listen, look at what Christ has done for you. Therefore, you can never be amazing— <laughs> and think ridiculously highly of yourself because Christ is on everything, right? You can only ever boast or be, be like, excited about him. You're never going to be like, I'm so awesome. So pride is gone. And if Christ has died for you and paid every debt you could ever have morally before God, and you, you belong to God Almighty, then what could you possibly have to be afraid of? So now fear is gone and pride is gone. So what is possibly going to motivate you, Right? And then Keller goes, well, then you don't understand the gospel. <laughs> because there are other motivations. You just don't believe in them because you're a cynic. But you see, when news actually hits somebody and changes them from the inside out, there's no need for pride and fear anymore, which, yes, it does motivate the majority of humanity in the majority of cases. And that's supposed to be the difference between a Christian and somebody who's not a Christian. The gospel is supposed to be the news that comes in it motivates you in a totally different way than you've been motivated before, and fear and pride are gone forever. One of the other things that people misunderstand is that because the gospel is news, there's nothing to do. But there's actually a lot to do with news. We're doing stuff with news all the time. The first thing is everybody believes or disbelieves news. That's one of the reasons why faith is such a big deal in the Bible. Here's the news. This is the servant. This is what he did. This is who he is. Do you believe it or don't you believe it? That's not a work in the Bible, but it's a do, right? And the second thing that's most important thing to do in the Bible is to be happy about it. Here's one of the things you can do about news is to be happy about it. That we call that worship, praise, adoration. We have lots of really cool religious words in Christian syntax that you can learn later on. But the, but all of it basically comes out in the idea that God has done something for you, and you can be happy about it. That's a do. Instead of being an angry, selfish, complaining, bad attitude about everything, why don't people do things more for me? Why isn't my life easier? To be, to realize the news of what has happened in Christ the Savior, and to be happy about it. And to live in light of it and to let it change you, and to form your identity around it because you want to, not because you're afraid or because you want to be thought fantastic. 
And you can put your hop in it. <laughs> you can dance, but it, that means hope. And when you put your hope in something, you're happy about it. You're thankful for it. What does that do to your resolve? It hardens your courage. Courage, real courage doesn't come from fear and pride. Real courage comes from love and hope and gratitude and trust, right? There's this, well, I guess I probably shouldn't, it's a, it's a probably radar movie, so I should. There was this movie called Enemy at the Gates about um, the battle for Stalingrad. And there was this point in the movie where they go, how do we make the Russian soldiers fight harder? And there were two options, and the main option was like, threaten them more, Right? And there's this one point where one guy goes, I know a hero that we could teach them to believe in, right? And they start writing about this one sniper guy, and the whole movie's about him. But there's this idea, like, you you don't fear and pride people into greatness. It doesn't work. And so you can't create courage out of fear and pride. G.K. Chesterton said, brave men do not fight wars because they hate the people in front of them, but only when they love the people behind them. And when that happens, you become able to take real risks for great things that you get nothing out of. Like, I mean, honestly, like Hannah Savage, like who wakes up in Madison with an iPhone and frozen yogurt down the street and goes, I think I'll go to West Africa where there's no plumbing where I'm going to be staying, you know, and lizards and such. Or, or the Kyles, like we live in Madison, but we think we ought to move further north. The cool, are you kidding me? But think about our culture. Everything gospel-centered and given by God looks like a risk, even when it's not. I can't tell you how many people I talk to who are young people, and they don't want to get married because it's too big a risk. I remember being in L.A., sitting with a girl who had been through my youth group who was in film school. She was 22, and she said, I'm not going to get married and have kids. And I said, well, okay, why? She's like, well, because I got like a 50% chance of being a single mom if I do that. And I don't want to be a single mom. I'd rather not get married and have kids. And I thought, that's perfectly logical. It's perfectly logical. And yet, the Bible everywhere is like, you should get married. And you should find, you should fight through the world together. And this is, this is a good thing when you find a wife and a husband. Or kids, who wants to have kids so they can break your heart? They can take all your money, use up all your time, and break your heart. Doesn't that sound really fun? And it wasn't until I met a Christian family with five kids, and they talked to me about their theology of parenting, where I said, I am going to give life to someone, and if they want to throw it away, they can. And if they want to waste my money, they can. If they want to waste the years of my life I give them, they can. It's going to be their life, and my job is just to give it to them, and to give them everything I can about how to live it, and they're going to do what they're going to do, and it's what I'm here to do. And maybe it'll be the most rewarding experience of my life, and maybe it'll be the most painful experience of life, and it doesn't matter. And my kids don't have to bear that burden. Because it—I'm willing to do it because Christ is Lord and King, and He gave me life. So I can give them life. What's the big deal? The gospel, when it's news and not advice, when it's not seven-pointers every week for 52 weeks for 40 years, when it's Look at what Christ has done for you and for us. Will you believe it? What will that do to you? How will it change us? How will it harness us? It will take us to a place that will radically change us. And ultimately, it'll bring us to that verse. Did, I don't know if you, if you noticed that verse at the end. There's this place at the end where it said, when God lifts up the servant, it says that he, it, he will give him 
the spoils from among the great. Do you remember that verse? Not a very interesting verse for us, right? It's like, oh, he's going to win a fight. Isn't that great? Right? You know, it's this picture of like all the generals of the cosmos come together, and God Almighty gives the servant some of the— booty doesn't sound like a really good word in this context, but that's what they used to call it, right? Now, but think about this. What rules apart from Christ? Sin, death, and hell rules apart from Christ. Satan is referred to as the strong man in the Bible. He calls the earth his. He's like, this is mine. I can give it to you if I want to. Think about what that picture is like. Sin, death, and hell, and all the other rulers of the world apart from God are like, it's, they all, they're going to divide up our dead souls and bodies. And God has given this one the right to walk in and say, this is mine. He just takes it. It's like, screw you. It's mine. That's what that means. It means us, when we can't keep ourselves alive anymore, when we don't deserve to be saved, when our, our souls have been full of greed and sloth and pride and lust our whole lives, and we don't deserve anything from God, he has raised up a servant who will walk into that mess at the end of time and grab everyone who's trusted in the servant and say, these belong to me. No, they're not good. They're just mine. And, the, and I get my portion, and this group is mine, and I want it. And that's it. And that's just news. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you. Um, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the servant. Thank you that he was your servant, first and foremost, and that he served not just Israel, but all of humanity. Thank you that he was the truest human and that he is the hero that we can be inspired by and look up to. He is the one who's died for us, that he has saved us from our sins, that he has died for our sins, and we weren't left to wonder if he was under your curse or bore your curse because you raised him from the dead, and you told us 700 years before it happened that it would, so that you could show us we could trust and believe in it, even 2,000 years later. We pray that you would set us free and you would bring us to yourself, and that you would help us believe, and you would help us be happy in it, and you would form our identity around it, that you would put, help us to put our hope in it, that you would harden our courage through it, and that you would help us take risks in it. And that it would be out of that grace and that news that we throw off diversion, and we grasp onto discipline, and we don't neglect the gift that you've given us, and we seek to live a life that saves both ourselves and our hearers because it's a life of truth surrounded in that news where he said, we strive towards this. We've put our hope in the living God. And we pray that you'd help us to live in that completely and gladly in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing this news.